Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word and help us to understand it. And Lord, I don't want us just to understand it, but Lord, help us to feel the Holy Spirit, apply it into our lives, and then Lord, help us to have the grace and the Spirit of God to help us to obey this word that you speak to us this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Thou shalt not covet is the way that we would shorten this. And uh, this, this commandment maybe is one that we don't focus on as much, especially because that word covet is not a word that you use every single day. Um, but I, I want to just begin by, by kind of laying a foundation to help us to see that there are ways that this commandment applies to our culture today, maybe more than any of the others. Um, we live in a, in a really consumer-driven culture, and we possibly, I think many people would say that we live in the most wealthy society in all of human history. Not only are we the wealthiest people on the planet today, as of right now, but the richest people in all of human history. When the service is over, when everything's done, I'm going to get in my magic flying carpet uh, and uh, take off at speeds that would have terrified somebody a hundred years ago, let alone a few thousand years ago. Uh, and that won't even bother me. I won't even be having to put the pedal all the way to the floor because my car is capable of much faster speeds than I drive it at. And uh, not only that, I have a little device up here that right now is recording this sermon um, and this service, but it'll do all kinds of other fun things. It'll take pictures and videos, and it'll receive pictures and videos from all the way across the other side of the, the planet. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I contacted a friend of mine um, that lives in Papua New Guinea, and I was reminded of them by an event I was at, and so I text Velma Ninjapa, and I said, I, I saw your cousin at IHC, and just a few seconds later, I got a reply. Who would have even imagined such an amazing, incredible world just 50 years ago? Uh, we've come so far so fast we're blessed in so many ways. And you know, you don't even have to be what we call a wealthy person to have one of these magical devices in your pocket or one of those magic chariots like I drive home in. Normal, everyday people, even people that in America we would call below the poverty line. Poor people in America have it better than the richest and wealthiest people on the planet just a few years ago, let alone hundreds or thousands of years ago. If we were to bring Nebuchadnezzar or Caesar or Nero or some ancient monarch with incredible wealth into the world we live in today and showed him just the tiniest glimpse of what's available to the poorest of people, he would look on with utter amazement and say, what great wealth would I have to trade for these incredible uh, things, to have these things in my life? And yet, some of them we give just a pittance for, and we can carry it around with us. And with all that wealth and all that incredible technology, 
wouldn't you think that we would be a profoundly contented people? Since we have so many blessings and so much wealth, wouldn't we be just the happiest people on this earth? And maybe you are. But it seems like to me as I look around at our world that the more wealth we have and the more technology we have, the more money we have, the more blessings we have, it's not actually resulting in uh, contented people that are grateful and happy for all the blessings that they have. That it, it seems like we're in this situation where the more we have, the more we want. And uh, I don't know what's causing this, but I have some guesses. I, I actually think it's, it's human nature. It's something deep down in our hearts. And that's at least part of what this commandment is speaking to. Um, it's important before we go any further uh, for, for us to, I, I think the first thing we need to do is just to determine at a basic level uh, whether, whether this commandment actually matters today. Some people, if you turn them to verses in the Old Testament, their immediate response will be, well, that's in the Old Testament. It doesn't really matter for us today. Now, I hope that you've listened to me preach long enough that I hope you never, ever say those words because we know that that's not true. Uh, this is the way we maybe would say it at a basic just at bare minimum, we'd say this, that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the words of Scripture in the first half of the Bible, not all of them are binding for us as Christians. When we look at laws like don't eat shrimp or pork, and the New Testament reinterprets that. It helps us understand it differently. And, and you as a Christian, you're not required not to eat pork. But even though all of it is not binding to us as Christians, all of it is a authoritative to us as Christians. And what that means is that even those kind of verses that I look and I say, it doesn't maybe mean the same thing to them that it means to me today. It still means something and it's still God's word to God's people. Amen. There never, ever, ever do we discount or as, as one preacher put it, unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. God has given us all of his word and we have to be faithful to all of it. But beyond just that, we know that this commandment matters because it's repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament. The word covet or covetousness uh, or coveting is repeated something like a dozen times in the New Testament. It's repeated from the word from the mouth of our Lord. And it's found in lists of commands that make it clear that God sees this as a very big deal, as a serious, uh, a serious sin. And a command that he meant very seriously. And so that brings us to this moment where we say, if we live in a culture where, Brother Martin, you said that you think that we actually have a problem with this. And it applies to our world today. And then on the other hand, it's a, it's a serious sin that we need to come to grips with and repent of and ask God to help us to overcome it and have victory over it. Then what is this thing that you're talking about? Are you telling me, Brother Martin, that I'm not allowed to have a cell phone or I'm not allowed to have a car? And if I have one, if I've been given one, then, uh, then I don't, I'm not allowed to want a new one or a later model or a nicer one or a bigger one. Or, that's not really what I'm saying. Um, although there is a problem in our world where, where desire gets out of control, let's start with just this basic idea that to covet is to combine two things. It's, it's greed and desire coming together, like a, like a heart that's unsatisfied with what we have and longs to have other 
someone else's something or, or uh, something else. And what happens, coveting, when it becomes a sinful thing, is when we want something that we can't have lawfully. Okay? Did you notice the way the scripture reads here when we're looking at this commandment? It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's manservant or maidservant or ox or ass or anything that is your neighbor's. And if we translate it into today's culture, you know, what is it to covet? If, if somebody was to fulfill the desire for their neighbor's house, that's theft. And to covet your neighbor's wife, to, to desire after your neighbor's wife is to lust. But if we were to update and maybe modernize the rest, it would be also don't covet your neighbor's technology or cell phone, his manservant or maidservant, or his car or his TV. And today there's a long list of things we could add to that. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. What is your neighbor's? You don't look at what he has and say, oh, man, I wish I had that too. And, and fan into flames of sinful desire those natural human desires for improvement. One of the things that's interesting about this 10th commandment, this final commandment, there's a difference between this commandment and all the others. We have commands to not, uh, to, to not commit idolatry, to not put other things before God, to not take God's name in vain, to, to honor the, the seventh day, to honor the Sabbath day commands not to lie and, and steal and commit adultery. All those are things are things that you do on the outside. The way that the scripture is defining them. In fact, when we go back to the first one, idolatry, if someone says to me, well, you can, you can have an idol in your heart, that isn't what it's actually referring to. It's referring to when it says idolatry in the first verses, the first two commands, it's referring to setting up a graven image or to, to clear external idolatry. But when we come to the final command, this last of the Ten Commandments is something that you can only do in your mind and heart. No one can look on at the outside and see that you're coveting. It's something down deep inside. In fact, it, it's kind of interesting because, you know, the Ten Commandments are, are, are a civil law code for the children of Israel. And so, because of that, they're what we think of as actual laws. But this right here, it actually defines a, maybe we call it a, a Judean thought crime. It's something in their heads and in their hearts that they're able to do. And God says, this is sin, and I don't want to do, you to do this. It's a sin in the heart that's invisible. And the question that, it, that we ask then is, if this is something that's, that's happening down inside the heart, how can I know if I'm coveting or not? How do I know that I'm coveting? Because I can't, I can't look at my behavior and say, well, I'm doing this or that, so, so therefore I'm coveting. Or you look and say, well, I'm not doing those things, so I'm not coveting. And this is difficult because we live in a culture that talks a lot about emotions, but we pay less attention to them in actuality than most cultures do. And this is what I mean by that. What I mean is that we speak about our emotions and our desires as if they control us instead of us controlling them. We talk a lot about, about desires and hungers and longings and lusts and love. We talk the language of the heart, but it's always in the context of, well, just follow your heart. 
do what feels best. Because we have this idea that our emotions, our desires, our hungers have the control. They have gotten the bit in their teeth and they're just going to take us places. And this becomes in our culture a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And the reason why I want you to notice this, there is one group of people that that kind of mentality benefits and that's retailers. The more that a consumeristic culture can convince you that you can't control your desires and hungers, the more you're enslaved by those desires and controlled by those desires, and they run you ragged. And the first step we're going to have to take as Christians, this is, we're in desperate need of this today, is to take a step back and with God's word, allow the light of God's word to shine its light on our desires and show us what we really love. A book written a couple of years ago that I read and still grips me today, the title, you don't even have to get past the title to be gripped by the the book. The name of the book is this, You Are What You Love. That's the title, You Are What You Love. And this is the premise that the author argues from. He basically says this, James K.A. Smith says, that we think about ourselves and have for a few hundred years now as thinking people, as some people say, brains on sticks, and that I think of myself as defined by by my belief system, that I believe these things and that defines who I am. But he said this isn't really true. Scripture sees us as loving people, as hearts on sticks, so to speak, and it speaks to us as people that are led and guided by our loves. But those loves are not just... um, they don't just show up out of the blue. They are nurtured and, and um, cultivated by our habits of life. And so what I want to just begin by, by saying to you all as you're listening to me is, my prayer for us as the people of God is that you would just begin to, in your daily devotions, that's part of why it's so important, because of what our loves do for us and what our desires do in our lives. It's why Proverbs says this, Keep your heart with all diligence because out of it flow the issues of life. I, I don't want to feel like I'm hobbying or hammering on certain things, but I want you to be very clear about something. The things you spend your time doing day to day will determine what you love, and what you love will determine your destiny. What is the first and greatest commandment? Jesus said it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. One of the reasons why we gather together in worship, one of the reasons why we have a pattern in worship that maybe gets a little repetitive sometimes, but do you know what we're doing? Why are we doing that? Worship is about expressing our love for God, but it's about more than that. It's actually about shaping that love. It's about helping us to fall more deeply in love with God. Having your personal devotions, Brother Martin tries to, I really try to to bring that up regularly and to encourage you to have daily devotions. But some of you, maybe you hear me say that, and it doesn't fully sink in for this reason. You say, well, Brother Martin, it sounds like what you're saying is, I need that in my life because it's important that I express my love for God and that I feel his love towards me. But I've tried to have devotions, and that's not what happens for me. I don't really feel God's love. I don't, I don't feel loving towards God. It kind of feels dead and dry. So this is what I do, Brother Martin. Whenever I feel that need in myself, when I feel dry, when I feel... Then I have 
I have my devotions. Well, you've got it backwards. What you're needing is you're needing patterns and habits in your life that will shape your desires. Why is that? Because the scripture tells us that that desire, those desires and hungers that you have, can be turned away from God towards other things. And Jesus actually tells us what that is when our desires, when our hungers are turned away from God and they're turned to other things. He says covetousness is idolatry. That's what the Bible says. If you want to look that up, it's in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, and that's Paul's words as well. It's, in fact, repeated throughout Scripture. Paul says covetousness is idolatry. He gives them a list of sins that begin with, with immorality and sinful wickedness. But when he gets to that last one, he said covetousness, which is idolatry. What, how is it idolatry? What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is this, that for something to be coveting, it's when I desire something. And then I realize, I, I look in my wallet, I pull out my wallet, and I count my cash, and I realize that I can't purchase that item. I don't have enough money to purchase that. Well, who gave me the money that I have? Well, God did. Who blessed me with that? Did God give me enough money for everything that I need? He said he would. Hebrews 13.5 says um, that uh, he said, I will, I will never leave you forsaken you. Therefore, we may boldly say, uh, I will not fear what man can do unto me. God says, I've given you everything that you need. There's no need to covet something that I can't afford because God has given me the things that I need. But maybe it's not something that's in my wallet. Maybe it's somebody that I see and my heart desires them, something that I want. Do you know nowadays people covet each other's hair color? <laughs> they covet each other's hairstyle. They, now, please understand, this isn't meant as about anybody and what you're doing. What I'm saying is this. Is there something in your heart that goes, if I'm really going to be happy, I need to be like them? Are you following me? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm talking about? What I'm talking about is a heart hunger that is not satisfied with God that wants to be satisfied with other things. Do you see that? Do you see how it's idolatry? Because what, what worship says is we turn to Christ and we say, you are all that I need, and in you I have all of my needs met. He's promised in his word. If you read through Matthew chapter 6, what does Jesus talk to them about? He says, you have hearts that, that desire all these things. You're seeking after food and clothes and all these things. He said, that's the things that, that the Gentiles, that those that don't know God, that's the things that motivate their life. But that's not what you need. He says, your heavenly father knows the things that you have need of. And he said, because of that, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Does that mean that it's wrong to have things? That's sinful to have things? No, 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 no. There's nothing sinful about those things. The sin is down in our hearts that reaches for things that God has not chosen to give us. This is the commandment that Paul recognizes reveals his own, revealed his own sinfulness before he knew Christ, before he'd been transformed by the giving of the Spirit. In Romans chapter 7, he says this. He says, the commandment awakened within me all manner of covetousness. He recognized that there were hungers and desires in his heart that weren't fulfilled by God 
but instead were determined to find something else to fill that longing and loneliness in their heart, his heart. Do you, do you see? That's what I'm talking about. That's the, the root issue. Um, all of us maybe have different things that might bother us or tempt us. But do you know, for all of us, we need a lesson in, because after we've determined whether we have a problem with covetousness, we've got to decide how we're going to do something about it. What am I going to do about it? Because I live in a culture that tells me constantly, my life is not quite good enough. Every single day I pass billboards that tell me, if I'll just buy this or have this experience or, or this new car, if I'll just have that, then I'll be happy. If I, there's some experience, there's some object that will make me truly happy. Whether it's plastic surgery or whether it's a new Lexus or a new Mercedes or a new house or a new... All of those things are gifts. Well, some of those things are gifts that God gives us, but they're not where we find our contentment. We can't. And when we try to manufacture in our own hearts contentment, we find ourselves falling short. Has anybody ever tried to just kind of work up a contented feeling? And what happens in our lives, I've talked to you all before about the screensaver of your heart, the screensaver of your mind, and we've talked about, uh, probably most of us remember the days when computers had screensavers, and some computers they still do. They're not as big of a deal as they used to be with the old tube monitor, but there was a screensaver, and it would, it would do this thing. Whenever you left the computer alone, that's what the computer would do. And in our minds, when we come to a moment of rest, before you go to bed, when you wake up in the morning, or when you're driving on the highway in rush hour traffic and you've got nothing to do, there's something that your mind goes to. Examine it. What is it? Why does it go there? Do you know this is something that Brother Martin has found in his own life? There's been desires that I've had that began to control me, began to, and they weren't sinful desires in and of themselves, but they become sin when I decide I want them no matter what. I begin to scheme and find a way to accomplish these things. I'll just take some examples of some people that had covetous desires that led them into grave sins. That's why scripture takes this seriously. Think about King David, a man after God's own heart. But what happens? He sees a woman bathing a woman that belongs to someone else. And instead of seeing and then turning away and thinking on other things, instead she, he decides to choose her for a screensaver. He begins to think about and dwell on and meditate on this beautiful woman that he's seen bathing. And he finds out she belongs to someone else. And instead of putting the thought out of his mind, she's someone else's wife. I can't think about her. I can't lust after her. He allows a covetous desire to spring up in his heart and he begins to ruminate on Think about how he can have her. And you remember, before it's over with, King David has committed murder in order to have what his heart desires. King Ahab does the same thing. He desires a vineyard that belongs to someone else. And when the man won't sell to him, and uh, he's pretty disappointed about it, his wife works out an evil plot where because of covetousness, because of a spirit of coveting, they end up having Naboth slain so that King Ahab can have that vineyard. This is a serious sin, and the question is, how do I overcome it? Because I can't just make myself contented. Meditation and, and uh, just taking a break, it, that's not going to be enough. I need to choose a new screensaver. That's what you need to do. 
You need to find something else to fill your mind with, to shape your loves around, and to awaken your desires. There are two things that help us with that. And that is gratitude. But sometimes it's hard to be grateful. Especially if those desires have really taken root in our heart. Because we are not grateful. And that's why God has given us something else. It's, it's giving, generosity. As w- one of the reasons why it's so important for you to cultivate generosity in your life is because it helps in your gratitude. One thing that our family has begun doing, trying to do, is as we pass the homeless folk on the way to church and on throughout the week, I, I keep a, a box of protein bars in my glove box. And week after week, I give Michelle, I've learned her name, and we will chat just for a moment as I stop at that light. And I'll give Michelle a protein bar. And what goes through my mind, my kids asked me one time, they said, Brother Martin, they said, Daddy, why, why, <laughs> why, are, why, why are you giving her a candy bar? And I said, well, it's a protein bar, buddy. Why is, she, why is she out there? And I said, well, I said, it's because she doesn't have anywhere else to go. Now, I know we could talk about, well, maybe she does have another place to go. There's Pacific Garden Mission. There's other missions. But, you know, people don't end up in those places until they've many times cut themselves off from what family's left, if they have any family left. And sometimes there's reasons, whether it's mental health issues or addictions, things that bind them, that put them in a place, I'm driving by somebody, I've just finished a good meal or I'm headed home to a good supper, and I have the money. If I wanted to, it might, it might pinch my budget a little bit for the week, but I have the money to stop at almost any restaurant I would want to in the city of Chicago and have a wonderful meal. And here's a lady that's thanking me for a protein bar that I don't even like. I tried them, and, and it was just wasn't, wasn't that good. And she thanked me one time. I, the second time I gave it to her, she said, it's so good. She said, sometimes they give us stuff that's not really doesn't really taste very good. But she said, this was really good. Thank you. And you know what that does in my heart? It makes me grateful. It awakens in my heart a gratitude. That's why it's so important for us to reach out to those people that are less fortunate than we are and to give. Because that giving breaks the back of greed. The problem is that greed, it gets a grip on our life and it makes us enjoy the blessings that God has given us less and less while we want more and more. And the more we get, the less, we, the, the, the less grateful we are until finally we can end up in a place, to paraphrase a joke that's been told many, many times, where we have everything and we're grateful for nothing. But God can help us to turn to him in gratitude and look at our lives and say, God has given me so, so much. Maybe a few of you saw something I posted on the church's Facebook earlier this week, and, and I, I don't have the exact quote, but something along this line. If, if you think that there's something that will make you happy, if only you have it, it's not true. When you get that, it won't make any difference. You'll either be contented and grateful for what you have right now, Or there's nothing in this world that can make you happy. What does the the man say so many years ago, but the quote still holds true today. It's still true today. He says this, that 
I believe it's Augustine, says, you have made our hearts for you, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. A wise man, a story is told of a wise man wandering through a bazaar, a big marketplace, kind of what we would think of as a mall. And he said he enjoyed walking through just to see all the stuff he didn't need. God can do something down in our hearts that so satisfies us that we're content with what God has given us. Does that mean we don't ever want something new or or something better? No. But it means we keep those desires and those hungers in their proper place. And when we can fit those in, in a way that honors God, that's okay. That's okay. But covetousness is when we decide, if it's between loving God with all my heart and obeying him or loving this other thing, I think I shall love this thing till I have this, and then I'll turn back and love God. But we mustn't do that. This is a serious sin in that, as Paul says, it's idolatry. And God comes to smash every idol, to destroy every desire and hunger in our life that calls us away from the worship of God until we find our rest and satisfaction in God himself. Matthew 6.33 puts it like this, and I'll close with this. Jesus says in the midst of the passage that I quoted earlier, the Gentiles seek all these things. They have all these desires that are unmet. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. James says it like this. He says that that you lust and you desire to have, you kill to desire to have things. He's picturing the murderousness of David or Ahab in the Old Testament. But he says the truth is, James says this thing that might be odd if we didn't have Jesus' words to bring back to. He says, but you don't have because you don't ask. He's picturing people that are, that are in desperate, they have desperate lusts and greed that's driving them to commit evil and sin because they want more and more and more and more. But then he's reminding them, but if you would just ask, God would give you what you need. And if you ask and God says no, then you didn't, you didn't need it to start with. But my prayer is that as we begin to look at our desires, and then we say, Lord, help me to reshape these desires. Don't let me be run around and and run ragged by my heart hungers. But you help me to begin to shape through the power of your word and through my spiritual disciplines and, and my daily devotions. You help me to begin to shape those desires so that my desires are fulfilled by you, so that I want what you want. All of us have daily habits that shape those desires. May God help us to become intentional about shaping those desires so that we truly can say, with the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Because our hearts in every part long only for what God wants to give us, where we found a place of contentment because of our generous spirits and because of our gratitude for what God has given us, we look around and say, I have need of nothing. God has given me everything I need and so many things that I want. May God make that to be true of us. Amen.